This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why do populist movements, which exist on both the left and the right, attack universities? Is there some justification for their suspicion of elites who tell us what's true, how to live our lives, and how to solve our problems? What's the relation between populism, rearing its head all over the world, academia, and the idea that everyone's opinion should matter in a democracy, regardless of their education, birth, and academic experience? Hadas Aron is a political scientist who studies populist movements in various countries to understand the underlying problems and tensions that drive such movements. We talked about the attacks on academia that are present in many countries today, how best to understand those attacks, and whether there are some issues that are non-negotiable even in the most robust and raucous political disputes. <laughs> Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. Welcome, I'm really happy to sit here today with Hadas Aron, who is a faculty fellow, really visiting faculty member at NYU. Hadas, welcome to Think About It. Thank you, I'm so happy to be here. So I'm, I'm really interested in your work, and I've read a couple things online. You study populism and how this is reshaping a lot of countries around the world. Mm -hmm. And you've written a bit on academic freedom and the relation of populism to the university. Yeah. Could I ask you to start out, give me a working definition for me what populism is roughly in general terms not a whole dissertation right. on it but in general terms. <laughs> you decided terms. to start with a tough question yes, in a way because <laughs> who knows right uh, there's so many um, so we usually work with a very broad and thin definition for populism Kasmude is the one that is usually cited for it and it means that populists have a certain he calls it a thin ideology other people define it in a slightly different way but it's basically a thin ideology that pits the good people versus the corrupt elite It's very anti-establishment, and it's focused on the people and representing the people's will. That's the very thin definition of it, which practically everything goes into. I mean, almost everyone fits into that. And then, you know, there are sub-definitions for right-wing and left-wing populism. But basically, if it says it speaks for the people, isn't that sort of the idea of democracy in general? So where does it exactly. part from general democracy where it's exactly. for the people, by the people? 
So that's a very good question, right? First of all, I think that populism is not some kind of unique demon that just came about. I think it's a representation of some element of politics in general. So I think that's a good observation for it. But part of it, the anti-establishment part of it is very strong. So uh, that part of populism, it means that your political rivals are really enemies and that you define the people in a certain way and other people are excluded from that definition. So it has an exclusive and, again, and a very anti-establishment element to it. And if your political rivals are enemies, then your job is maybe not to achieve compromise, work together with them, form some kind of exactly. st- strong or weak coalition, but rather to actually... To exclude uh, them. They're not a legitimate part of what you consider your community or your people. And so, I mean, to a great extent, it's not always like that, but to a great extent, that's what we we look and see uh, when we talk about populism. And what you said, this kind of distrust of elites or of sort of groups, where mm-hmm. does this, what is that rooted in? Can you say a little bit more about that? Who are these groups? So it changes from one, commu- one com- political community to another. But this can be the establishment politicians. It can be people like us, academics, so cultural elites. It can be all kinds of gatekeepers that usually um, keep the gate slightly closed to the masses for political power, for access to cultural power, um, and for access to economic power. And this part also could be somewhat reasonable to suspect that gatekeeping functions, maybe they're not fair, maybe they've kept people out for the wrong reasons. Sort of an egalitarian society would say there shouldn't be people so responsible for... Mm -hmm. So the idea that populism is bad is an idea that, you know, a lot of people use these days, probably people from the elite. And it's not necessarily the case. There are a lot of ideas within it that makes that could make sense to a lot of people that believe in equality or believe in the liberty of democracy. It's not necessarily a bad thing, populism. Mm. A lot of the claims of populists and also a lot of the concerns of people that vote for populists are very real concerns in unequal societies. So it's not a term that is the absolute devil. Right? It just takes some forms of rhetoric and crassness and, you know, it takes this form that um, a lot of us don't like, but it doesn't mean that in its core it's a bad thing. And there is a lot of discussion on whether populism is a correction to democracy or whether it's anti-democratic. Well, that's interesting. That opens up a different space because I do think that when I've heard it, the term is used generally in two ways, as an as a problematic attack on sort of democratic structures and as in the shadow of the devastating, terrible movements of the past. Mm-hmm. That populism comes right. very close immediately to fascism. So you think about Germany, sort of the crimes of the Holocaust. You think really quickly about the worst possible so- societies. Yeah. I think, first of all, I think, and I've written some about it, I think people think about it too quickly. I think that connection is too immediate um, and it, it shouldn't be that way because First of all, and other people have written about it too, populism can go with different types of ideologies and we see different manifestations of it. Populism has been, as an actual political movement in government, has been the strongest in Latin America and has taken a very different form Mm. there than it has in the European context. And I also think that we're not there, right? I mean, a part of the, or maybe one of the most fundamental things in the interwar years that was connected to the movements, the fascist movements, was violence. And we don't see it in the same way at all today. And it's such an important component of what happened there. 
Um, and another one was that democracies were either young or didn't have a lot of supporters from within and didn't have a lot of international credibility at the time. And that's not the case today. So I think that this, like going immediately there, I think is a mistake. We don't exactly have much examples in in history of very strong democracies that have collapsed. Um, the democracies that we know that have collapsed have been usually weak or young or not very well established. And so... I'm not sure that we know if this is like those those prophecies of the mm-hmm. end of democracies. I'm not sure that we have a very good historical cases to look at and examine how this process is supposed to happen. How did you get interested in these movements? Because there's such urgency. And as you said, there are so many books now, How Democracy Dies and uh, all these books, which are pretty interesting. I think people at least are interested in political processes, which before and maybe they just lived in them. Mm-hmm. How did you get interested in studying something that's so sort of gripping to people? Mm-hmm. I actually didn't start with studying populism. And even today, I'm a little bit hesitant. To, I mean, I say I do. It's it's fashionable to say so, but I'm not sure that it's my main focus even today, even though all my works are about populism, and yet I'm not sure. So the way it started was I was interested in, I'm, I've always been interested in political narratives and in how they come about, where they come from, why they work and where they work and why they don't work sometimes. So this has always been like my main interest. And when I started, I was looking at this process of extremist populists that come and interact with the center of the political um, spectrum and sort of take over. I started studying it. I was interested in this process of like why the state sometimes or like the central establishment sanctions these these quite extremist movements. And I was the place that I where it was most notable then it was around 2012 was Hungary. And I went to Hungary to just look around and see, you know, to do some field work and see how this process actually works. Like why is it that sometimes the mainstream becomes extremist populist? And and I thought that it had something to do with some kind of a national narrative that is more amenable to these ideas. And I still think that's the case, actually. I still think that some nations are more prone to be taken over by populist ideas than others. And say something about what you mean by political narrative. Is that the story we tell ourselves of who we are? Yeah, exactly. Like, it's it's actually really political ethos in a way. So it's a bunch of stories that we tell each other about, um, and it, we tell ourselves about who we are. Who we are as a nation, what is our history, and what does it mean? Where are the borders of our country, mm. and where are the borders of our society, and who belongs and doesn't belong, and who are our enemies at every given moment? What's interesting in in these in this mo- in this moment right now, there seem to be huge fights over these exactly. stories. Exactly. Whereas before, and maybe people just live in the oh, I live in a democracy or I live in a non-democracy, but I sort of get through it. Now people really argue about who are we as a nation, a given nation. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm interested in, to understand this struggle, to understand why sometimes are settled times and other times are unsettled, and to understand what are the tools, the rhetorical tools with which people fight this fight, right? So what do they use from their history and from you know their previous understanding of what they are to have this struggle over and, their identity? And how do such narratives get created and handed down? Where do they live, actually? Because what you're studying then is not only statistics and right. voting patterns, yeah. right? There's something else. Where do they actually find, where do you find them? So it's a good question. I mean, both methodologically it's interesting and it's interesting substantially. I think that 
in my view, I mean, okay, everyone is a constructivist, right? We all believe that narratives, that the way we think about things can change and that a lot of things are constructed, can be built, you know, social and political entrepreneurs can come and build a narrative and people might believe it. But I think that the limits of these constructions are quite narrow. I mean, it doesn't come from nowhere. I think it comes from a close, something that rings true to people. And I think that's basically the historical story that we have. I think that only if something has been told before many times, and that's a part of what I'm trying to understand, and by the way, still I'm working on because it's still hard for me to fully expand, but I think that stories that have been told before in our history often that fit some kind of a pattern of the way we have thought about ourselves before ring more true to people and so are more likely to become dominant. So they're paradigms or... I had I had a conversation here recently about Claude Lévi-Strauss, the anthropologist who invented structural anthropology, mm -hmm. where he says all cultures around the globe, from indigenous tribes in the Amazon to high society in Paris, share a certain fundamental need for myth, for a myth that defines who we are, where we come from, and where we're going to go. Yeah. In the most basic sense, they're kind of origin stories, but they also cast us into a future. So they have these two dimensions. They're not just old stories that we hang on to, but they give us a roadmap of how we're going to be. Exactly. I think that's very much true. And I think, by the way, and that's sort of the thing that we, we came here to talk about, that idea of why academic freedom is in danger is exactly because we're living in a time of struggle over narrative. And if we do anything, <laughs> it's it's dealing with how we understand uh, society. And I mean... It's a dual thing, right? We both build a narrative and we're a class, so or at least a certain group in society. And both of these things are very problematic for populists. But it's really interesting that you're studying sort of, let's say, narrative, which doesn't have the kind of force behind it, then, the word populism, but mm -hmm. you're studying something that shapes people's way of behaving, thinking of themselves. So it's it's interesting that it's political, so political, and it's... The field I come out of the field of literature where people used to dismiss narrative studies and say that's just reading books right. for the plot or something. <laughs> and you're saying there's something much deeper I that people so. participate in who are not even interested really in academia or in people who are cultural producers. Certainly. I mean, so there's there are arguments about it, right? Because, uh, for example... We're, we're living in a period where people, I think, are trying to rewrite hegemonic history. So not just, I mean, everybody tries to rewrite history. Everybody has their own idea of how, how things happen. What's hegemonic history? Right, what does that but, mean? <laughs> so it's not a term. It's just how I think about it. Why are people trying to rewrite the school curriculum? And why are they trying to create national holidays? Or why is there such a huge fight in the United States over certain memorials and statues? Right. This is an idea of a more hegemonic nar narrative, a narrative that comes from above, a top-down narrative of, of who we are. And there's a lot of struggle over it right now in many, many places. Uh, it seems like history is very important suddenly. And other people would say, yeah, but people don't know anything about history, most people. They're not interested in it. They're not taking part in this discussion, and they mostly don't care about it. That's true, but I think even in the margins of how we shape these glasses through which we see the world, I think it's important. And this is where the university plays a unique role. And you touched also on, on textbooks or kind of school curricula that mm -hmm. are not university, but they are, let's say, primary school, yeah. mostly written by people who have been to the university, probably. Mm -hmm. So what's the relation of these populist, let's say, 
this populist um, attempt to rewrite a certain story of the nation. What's yeah. the university's role in relation to this? So I think in general, the university, the whites so heated the discussion over academic freedom, and it is in many places in the world, is actually a two, it's a, it's a dual thing that is not entirely, I mean, these things are connected, but not entirely the same thing. One of them is, yes, universities are very important in narrative making. And how they do that is, despite the fact that we're not that important, but we are, we teach a lot of students, we teach the elite, certainly here, but everywhere. And we therefore shape the establishment for the next generation. And how we do that is important. For example, Jobbik, the far-right the far right party in um, Hungary, grew out of a history department in a university in Budapest, because this is like, it has been very important in uh, how they understand what their role is and how they understand Hungarian history and what they want to do. Uh, from this understanding. So it's actually very important to what we teach. And I mean, broadly, not what each one of us teaches, maybe. That's actually an interesting case. Yeah. I'll say it's maybe more that it comes out of a university. So it's not that we can set up this narrative that there's populism out there and then we are in the university defending some greater ideal. Yeah, not necessarily. I mean, we are generally not the makers of populism, but populism can sh- can be shaped out of what we do too, yes. And can you say something about academic freedom? The idea, it sounds a little dry to people and people say, oh, that's just sort of in the university, but it's become this, as you said, this flashpoint yeah. around the world, really, not just in European countries, in South American countries, in North America, in Asia. Why is this so suddenly more important than it used to be? Yes. Yeah, so as I said, so two things. One is the narrative thing. And you see, for example, in Russia that Putin is forming alternative academia to to the traditional academia. So he's forming his own think tanks and his own conservative intellectual groups that rewrite the narrative in the way that suits um, his understanding of Russian history and the Russian present and maybe future. Um, so that's one thing, and he's not the only one. It's just a model, but actually building, funding alternative narratives to the strongholds of academia is something that a lot of leaders are doing. And so that's purely like we, we want a different narrative. We're sick of yours, and we want a different one. In Eastern Europe, it's very strong because the idea there is the way populists are marketing themselves is we want to get finally get rid of communism. There was a revolution, but it didn't work. It didn't finish mm-hmm. because the establishment is still carrying the same ideas from before, and we want to find our independent ideas as countries, not these ideas that are really almost colonialist ideas. But the other thing is political actor thing. Academia in many places, maybe, I don't know if in the U.S., maybe to an extent, but in many places is this intelligentsia, liberal intelligentsia, and as such is a political rival and even a, even a political enemy of the regime. And that's, I think, most notable in the Turkish case, but uh, exists in other cases as well. That mm. it's not only the narrative that academia creates, but it all, it's also who, who it is. And it's true. The academia, in many places, belongs to a certain political class. And can you say something about the example of Turkey, of what has happened there over the last yeah. few years? I, I was just in a conference, and there was a panel on academic freedom with Turkish scholars, and it was... Actually, I was, I wouldn't say shocked. It's not that I didn't know, but the stories were really horrific. Turkey has never had a full, full academic freedom. It's never been a full democracy and has always had some issues, but it had relative academic freedom. And the cases of dismissing or even imprisoning academics were 
pretty rare. But then in 2015, after the failed coup attempt, there was a wholesale struggle against any kind of opposition in Turkey, and academia was quite, academia and media were at the front of this struggle. And so 6,000 academics were dismissed. Many of them, their passports have been taken. They can't leave the country. They're blacklisted and can't work. A few hundreds were imprisoned in different prison sentences. And these are not the most, you know, I mean, if you look at the things they publish or the things they do, these are academics. It's not, they're not, right. they're just supported some ideas that were not in line with the regime. But it's also quite arbitrary. And that should have been protected by this principle of academic freedom, that academics can publish and teach and research what they want, and the government shouldn't interfere and punish them for that. Exactly. That's the principle. That's sort of a democratic principle directly linked to freedom of speech, et cetera. But it should be a principle. That hasn't been preserved. What is the response to this situation? It often actually goes hand in hand with other types of freedom of speech, with uh, freedom of press in particular. In other places, uh, I'm, I'm not exactly answering the question, but I will get to it. In other places, the, the struggle has been not as violent and, or as coercive as it has been in the Turkish case. But there have been other, other attempts to tamper with academic freedom, mostly in the funding So unlike in the U.S. where there's a lot of academia that is not connected to the state and is um, private, in many places funding really depends on the state and that's a primary way of tampering with academic freedom. How research is funded, what kind of departments will and will not operate in different places and so on. The response has been, well... From academia itself, there's an attempt to give shelter to academics from places that where academic freedom has been reduced or doesn't exist anymore. And the European Union is trying to fight it. So, for example, they're in negotiations with Hungary about the case of uh, CEU, the university that is <laughs> actually for three, I think, three years now under negotiation of whether will it or won't it survive in Budapest. And this case is a case of an, a university established maybe a decade ago? Uh, I think almost two decades 20 ago. 20 years ago. Yeah. And so it's in Budapest, and now the government has f- tried to use all sorts of methods and mechanisms to close it or have it moved or reduce yes. its operations. So there was basically a law that targeted only CU, universities that don't have a campus in the country of origins where they come from, very specific things that were actually meant to target CU. And they've been in sort of a back and forth about what kind of conditions would see you have to meet, but not really. I mean, they, they seem to still really attempt to close it, but it hasn't reached a resolution yet. To go back to this idea of academic freedom, shouldn't the university be a kind of non-political space that sort of removed from all of this and academics shouldn't weigh in on things? And maybe if they do something that's really egregious, then the government should sort of say you're an employee of the state in many countries, actually. Mm -hmm. In many U.S. states, also, there are state universities, so the state legislature maybe feels you're working for us. So there's a limit to what you can be critical. In this country, we have a great tolerance and protection of free speech, so maybe you can say lots of things about the government. But shouldn't this apolitical space be preserved? Or do you think that the university is inherently a political player in the larger society? So it's hard for me to say because I haven't, I'm not sure. On the one hand, as a person who teaches in a university, I feel that 
yeah, I teach political science. It has to be political. And it's not just political science. Most things are political. I mean, I don't, you know, as a believer that everything is political, <laughs> the personal will is political. Well, I think we've seen, I want to make a <laughs> note here that natural science yeah. has become very politicized. Mm -hmm. It's probably always been politicized, but it's become more obviously so with some of these regimes you're talking about also taking a hard line against natural science. It's not just the humanities, yeah, cultural certainly. studies, history, and political science, but they're also attacking science department for mm -hmm. not promoting what they want to have promoted. Yeah, certainly. So it, it doesn't stop there. So on the one hand, that's the case. And I've, I was always wondering, like, in some places, there are restrictions on having protests inside a university by the students, for example, because as we talk about ourselves as professors a lot, but actually another reason or historically one of the reasons that academia has always been a little suspect is that students are a great force of, of discontent. Yeah, most a lot of political unrest started in yeah. universities or with young people. Yeah, exactly. So. And, you know, and in societies where there is, for example, high unemployment and students are educated but don't have opportunities, then they're this great fertile ground for, you know, they speak about ideas all day, they have a lot of free time, and <laughs> that's why they don't <laughs> submit papers. And, <laughs> right. and therefore, you know, protest often comes from them. So I, I was often thinking about it, like, wh what does it mean? Should the university be a safe space in that, in that sense to all kinds of students? Because, you know, a lot of students are liberals, but not all of them are. How do they feel in this environment? Shouldn't they be protected from whatever. It's a very personal, I haven't fully decided what I think about it, but I think that the university, they're not children or students. They are a part of being exposed to ideas is being exposed to a lot of things that are out there in the world. And therefore, I'm not sure that having a non-political space is, first of all, realistic and second of all, desirable. Because also what you just said, students bring politics into the university. Yeah. In some ways, if you told them this is a non-political space, which means you also can't have opinions. This, the freedom of speech movement in this country in Berkeley started because there was a rule that University of California professors couldn't have political opinions yeah. made public. Yeah. So the original intent was to actually say, we are also political actors in society. Yeah. And to remove this category seems inherently kind of problem or doesn't work. So while I don't believe in being non-political, I also do think that it's very, very important to be inclusive in the classroom. And in general, I'm a very moderate person, not necessarily in my opinions, but in my view of the world. I like looking at data first and thinking through facts. And that's why, that's why I have some problems with populism. <laughs> I like things to be quite moderate. But even in regards to populism, I'm not, I don't tend to look at things as if they're the end of the world. I At least academically, I try to um, view things in a moderate way. And in the same way, the classroom has to be a place where students feel comfortable to express themselves. And that includes students that are not a part of this kind of liberal consensus that exists in usually mm -hmm. in the classroom. If you bring up this liberal consensus in this country, there's a big debate about universities, as you know, from freedom of speech to external speakers to public funding to this idea that universities are very liberal and uh, some people who've gotten a lot of traction in the press say they're too liberal. They're saying there's too many liberal professors and they're indoctrinating the students. I think there are studies that show all sorts of things. It's maybe not that clear cut. But there is a somewhat of a suspicion toward the university, even in the United States, where we have over 4,000 colleges and universities. Mm -hmm. I sort of 
want to find a space to make a distinction between, let's say, Hungary or Turkey, sort of a kind of a real attack on universities and the kind of healthy skepticism in this country toward universities. I completely agree with that. I mean, and uh, further, there is a distinction also between Hungary and Turkey, by the way, just mm -hmm. in terms of like the level of violence or uh, coercion that is involved in this process. I, I generally think, and even though I'm political scientist and we try to generalize as much as we can but I think in regards to populism one of the interesting things that I've seen is that it really depends on the context of the institutional context and the historical context of specific places um, freedom of speech has been such a profound part of the United States and I know that people are now talking about whether it should be to an extent limited and whether it's you know gone too far an incitement to violence or something of the sort but Still, it's such a strong principle here more than anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. And it's fundamentally different from places that were either never a democracy or are very recent democracies and don't have this uh, strong culture of freedom of speech and maybe know how to deal with it way um, less well. And so I think it's, it's quite different. And when you think about the problems for universities that are dragged into political fights, in this country, a lot of universities are dragged into political fights. And in this country, you have an administration, however, that's very skeptical mm -hmm. about the university in general. And is on record, everybody from the president to the secretary of education, that they're liberal professors indoctrinating students. And a pro president who's now said he would cut federal funding on which all universities depend, even the wealthiest in this country, if they don't maintain what his agencies will define as the correct idea of understanding freedom of speech, mm -hmm. which presumably is the constitutional interpretation. But of course, that's just an interpretation that judges will have to arrive at. Yeah. Well, it's disturbing, but it's also in the United States, processes are extremely slow and uh, difficult to implement. Well, I mean, this all depends on states and on courts and on just a whole host of processes between what the president says and what happens uh, on the ground. And that's another thing that is quite different from these other countries we've been talking about, mm. where they're much more centralized and implementation is far more direct and actually happens. I appreciate your sort of... Uh Let's say optimism, not <laughs> not shared by all of your colleagues yeah. who do actually publish books, say how democracies die, and it's yeah. faster than you think, although incremental, right? So, yeah. yeah. But there's some sort of overlapping tendencies. Mm -hmm. So there is, in many of these cases, as distinct as they are, there is a sort of a through line, for example, the attack on gender studies, which mm -hmm. I find really interesting. Why do they pick out one field that is less than 1% of most universities are preoccupied with this field of study? But this seems to come up over and over again in all these very, very distinct. It's Brazil, it's Hungary, it's Turkey, it's Poland, it's the United States. Why do some things get the imagination going of these populists? Yeah, that's incredible. So as for as for like uh, me being an optimist, <laughs> I'm not. Uh, not You're really. realist. Okay. Yeah, I just think I'm not hysterical. But uh, no, there's certainly something going on. That's the underlying 
that's the underlying assumption, I think, of everyone. It just depends um, what you make of it. There is something going on. There is a rise of populism in response to certain processes of you know, globalization, automation, crisis. Um, so there is a change in the world. And I told my mother, she was like, you're, you're such an elitist. I told her, mother, I've studied for 25 years. Of course I'm an elitist. And what what else she, would I be? What did she mean by that? Was that praise, I hope? No. What, <laughs> what, what, wouldn't every mother want that on their daughter? What no. did she mean by saying that? You're an elitist. Um, the, exactly the, thing we're t- the things we're talking that about. That you're here. disconnected from what real people deal with? Or? Um... Yeah, that I yeah something like that yeah. yeah that you're not really in touch with what's really going on although I you mean, just I, named a lot of things I hope I hope she <laughs> meant it in a more mild way but <laughs> something like that and I try not to be but I also I am a part of our academic class I just uh, study sure. things I hope that concern a lot of people but as for gender studies I find it quite interesting too and I can't fully explain it there are, there are some things that I understand about it there has been research showing that some kind of and I, I really want to use air quotes, traditional values are uh, at the center because traditional values is a completely meaningless thing to say, but some kind of mm-hmm. a patriarchal uh, set of values are at the center of this. And perhaps, uh, you know, it's an attempt to preserve the power of some kind of an old white male dominant class. And so gender studies are at the heart of, of this or opposing gender studies. I don't know. It seems too uh, too direct and obvious to me. But something about it is happening. There is some kind of an attempt to block the entrance of certain groups to political power. And what would you say to people who say, well, there's maybe some kind of extremism in certain fields and I have a problem with this aspect of a certain field, so I have a problem with that. But then you suddenly find yourself on the same column with people who are jailing academics. So Mm -hmm. I I really want to find a way to make these distinctions because in my mind, I'm troubled with this attack on gender studies, which I also see as related to the fact that it touches on something very difficult to understand that there is, that we live with differences in the world, that human beings are different, and that the idea of equality it sort of clashes with that, that people, Mm -hmm. it's very hard to make sense of that for people to say, well, people are different. Mm -hmm. And then they're told, no, they're all They're not the same, but they should be equal. But Mm -hmm. this distinction I teach my students all the time, being equal does not mean you're all the same. Mm -hmm, Of course. But that's a political distinction that is already one step removed from lived reality for a lot of people. Certainly. And the other one is it's also easy to attack gender studies because it doesn't enjoy a huge swath of solidarity in the university. And I found this strange and a little bit unsettling that people didn't stand up right away and say, if this little area is attacked, we are all under attack. And instead, people are saying, well, those people are a problem. Mm-hmm. There's a strange disappearance of solidarity in the university. And the university, as we know, are notoriously fragmented. So, yeah, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> right, they're all fiefdoms. I mean, like I in mean, your own field, there are different strands of, of doing things, methodologies. And people. there is ego, and there are a lot of things happening. So... So two things on that, the f- the, and I think they're quite interesting. The first one is, is a personal thing. So it's, for me, I'm always like, yeah, pluralism is good, and we need to understand other people and understand the real concerns that they have. But then when it comes to women's rights, <laughs> I just, I'm completely non-tolerant in any way. I'm just like, nope, 
women's rights are like a top priority for me. And so give me a succinct idea. What are women's rights to you? What does that mean? So, for example, uh, there is a lot of discussion in certainly in Europe and in many other places about certain the clashes between, for example, religion and women's rights. Right? It's a big, big thing, uh, and it's a big thing used usually actually by the right to uh, say things against Muslims. They're not supportive of human rights, so we can discriminate against them, which I I certainly oppose. But um, I'm an Israeli, and in Israel there is a discussion on separation of uh, males and females in the public space in all kinds of situations. And I cannot tell you how opposed I am to it. There is nothing that there is nothing that you can say to me like, oh, respect the feelings of religious people and so on. No, that's where I completely draw the line. Because it would not grant yeah. a woman the same access exactly. to the same spaces. Exactly. And they would say, well, separate but equal. Exactly. You can have another school. You can go to do right. your shopping or whatever you need to do somewhere right. else. You can sit behind or but you can... You I know. think what's interesting about this, this example is a key to debates in America where separate but equal was overturned 50-some years ago by Brown versus Board of Education, one of the unanimous decisions. And we're still struggling with the legacy of that mm -hmm. because people will still carve out, and the current court is carving out, religious exemptions for all sorts of equality accommodation. Yeah, and there are certain judges that were either um, already appointed or nominated to different uh, courts that uh, actually don't believe in abolition of separate but equal. So, you know, I, I, yeah, we're still struggling but, with that. The but, past seems to haunt us. But to go back to this strange contradiction or sort of tension, you're saying that some populists or, let's say, conservatives would attack certain religion and saying they're not defending women's rights. Right. But are they sincere? Are they really proponents of women's rights? Because it goes hand in hand. They're attacking Muslim communities and gender studies. Right. Yeah, it's complicated. <laughs> There's a lot of writing about it. I mean, so in some places, they're not attacking gender studies. The Netherlands is the most classic place where the far right is uh, anti-Muslim in the name of liberalism. And it's a kind of a weird combo. But it's, but it's still, you know, a dismissing of minorities and therefore not something that I would accept in society. And so they're attacking um, religion in the name of liberal sort of yeah. European exactly. modern civilization. Value, civilization. Yeah. But that's interesting to for people to sort of step back and say, so where am I in this debate here? It is. So the other thing that I find interesting, we so I said I had two things. The second one is that there is this strand of people saying, all kinds of liberals, that say that the problem of the left all over the world is that somewhere somewhere between the late 60s and the 1990s, people started in different places, but some, somewhere there the left has went and gone all identity politics and abandoned the economic left, and therefore it's in trouble and it has gone too far and, and so forth. And I'm not, I think it's a very, very problematic claim, and it comes from very problematic places too, but I think that's the place where you ask about solidarity. That's the place Where, where liberals completely lose the solidarity with minorities, with women, with people of color. And I, I find that very problematic, I think. And what's this argument sort of in a nutshell? There's a lot of people who have written about this sort of this idea that identity politics has compromised the true calling of l the left or mm -hmm. liberals. Yeah, that the left has... So there are two sides to this argument, and with one of them, one of them I think has merit, but the other one is very problematic. But people argue that they're inseparable, which I don't think is true. One side of the argument is that the left has stopped being an economic left and so has abandoned the working class. That part is probably true, right, for different reasons, but to an extent it's true, even though in the United States the coalition of the working class 
existed with the with the left existed until very recently but and might return and it's not everywhere the case but in many western places this is what happened the other part of it is that they have left working class white people in remote places and have become urban and focused on identity politics i find it very problematic because you again blame the weakest in society for these processes uh, completely unjustly identity politics is a very old concept and uh, and i think it's both unfair and also just not true and identity politics is used it's an invention of the left brandished by the left serves minority populations to me today it also sounds like populist movements trade in identity politics wholesale full-on this their identity they're protecting this way of life who they are nativist ideas it all seems to be taken from the playbook of identity politics of course and when haven't they when you know, African Americans were segregated that's not America that's not identity politics when uh, the, the populist movement of the 19th century was was broken down through race politics that's not identity politics you know I mean or when women were not giving uh, the right to vote for people decades and decades or even centuries depends where where you count it from that's not identity politics so hmm. I really oppose this notion that so how the do those, left is now how do such stories then take hold it's amazing in some ways that <laughs> suddenly a story gets hold and you can break it down so quickly and say identity politics didn't start in the 1960s on the left it is serves political purposes also and it's done this on both sides for you say centuries yeah but we've been you we I, I don't know who's who we is but some kind of a political establishment or some kind of a dominant class has been blind to the people that are left outside the political sphere for a very long time so it's it's so not that, surprising that it's a narrative that works that goes back to the elitism that we haven't paid enough attention do you think that's really true that actually the elitism the academy the people in power have not paid attention to the ones who who have been disenfranchised left behind. This is a story that's supposed to explain a lot of the U.S., although it doesn't seem to really totally explain voting patterns because they're not voting for people who are going to help them economically, it seems. But it's supposed to explain a lot about Europe. Yeah. By the way, while it's true that, you know, thinking about lower classes voting for Trump, you say it doesn't make sense economically, But I'm not entirely sure that the economic alternative, and that's that's the argument of the left abandoning um, left values, I'm not sure that the alternative would have been beneficial enough to justify voting for someone who ultimately looks down on you. So maybe if you can't change the economy, then at least vote for someone who speaks to you on identity hmm. uh, an identity level. There's a, a lot of work on this, how people who used to vote in Europe, sort of strictly with the unions or even for the communists, they mm-hmm. switched and went right for the fascists. Yeah. And so there's the end of Eddie, Edouard Louis has this book, or Didier Eribon, who wrote a book, Return to Rem, so his parents. He said they went straight from the 60s being working class identified with the unions to working class identified with fascism to protect themselves against some idea of globalization mm-hmm. or the, uh, the impact of that. How should the university address all of this? And these are books written by university people. One is very young, one is a little bit older, but they're both in the university writing for the public. It's a good question. What is our role in this? You know, how activists or not activists should we be? And what are we really doing here? Are we just sitting and watching society and writing some, some notes? <laughs> right. 
You know, I don't know. I think that actually this is a time where activism is very important. And I think it's important to a lot of people. So at the first stage, I think our role is as, te- as teachers is the most important. I know that that's not how tenure committees view, view the situation. But I think as teachers, we need to help our students not just throw slogans and not just be hysterical about whatever is going on, but really have a better understanding of it and give students tools to both understand the world and, and maybe organize and know what to do. We need to make them into better citizens. I think that's our primary role. So it's nice that we write things, but they're not very widely read. <laughs> and whereas students is a direct connection that we have with the world, and I think our more Im- most important role. Do you think that social media play a big role in this new, or is this, if it's a new kind of phenomenon of populism? It certainly does. And yet... But maybe the question is also, what hasn't been impacted by social media? Yeah, so I'm saying we're living in this world today. It's hard for me to say. There are people who study social media and I'm sure can, uh, can give better answers to that. There have been revolutions and movements before social media. So the question <laughs> is, <laughs> I had a student tell me that the Arab Spring happened because of social media. No, it really, it really didn't. There were revolutions before that. But it might have changed something, not just in the speed, but maybe even the quality of the way mm-hmm. things play out. So, yeah, I think it does matter. It certainly matters. And I think, in general, the technological changes are at the heart of this period of change, right? Whether it's automation and different processes of globalization and how products are made, or whether it's the way we communicate with each other. But I find it hard to say something meaningful about social media because I don't, I don't fully understand the consequences mm-hmm. of this period that we're in. Mm-hmm. I think why I asked is when you said teaching is very important and we should teach our students to be good citizens. Yeah. This next generation is pretty good on social media. Mm-hmm. My generation is pretty bad on social media with one exception, which is Donald Trump. The generation above us is bad on social media. He figured out social media before other people did or while other people didn't quite do it. So he's very powerful on social media mm-hmm. and been he's been nearly able to kind of circumvent the traditional media and somehow beat them at their own game, it seems a little bit. And the students are doing this too. So I take a lot of inspiration actually from students who are activists in this country and other countries. And I wonder what the role of university should be in relationship to that. So, so I think the media part, they know and we don't have to teach them. <laughs> But one of the courses I teach is about social movements and protests. And I think that all the movements, the activist movements, learned from previous activist movements. They learned both strategies and they learned how to frame a narrative and they learned a lot of things. So our students have the means But they also need the content and the understanding and also just analytical ability to look at the world with. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's what we're here for. I'm going to go back to one thing you said earlier. I said on one thing you're unwavering on women's rights. Yeah. And sort of that's an interesting one when you're teaching. Sort of how far would you let a class go in discussing that? And people have different opinions and say, well, certain things and other things, you know, it's probably better for women to raise very young children or all <laughs> sorts of things like, you know, they can, I can make up many, many arguments that you hear all day. Instead of you said, we want to give them the skills and to frame a narrative. And someone says, well, I don't believe in your narrative. I actually have a very different narrative. And mine is going to be very powerful because I have a lot of followers. Mm. 
I mean, it's not the narrative I teach them. I teach them how to frame a narrative, mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. one narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but there are conversations in class that are very difficult, not just on women's issue, which I think the students are mostly... You know, women usually dominate men. <laughs> when we talk about women's issue, it's mostly women who talk and men who sit there. And when they do say something, it's usually problematic and the women shut them down. So <laughs> I am just there to moderate. But I think that the most difficult conversations that I have every semester is, and I teach European politics, is on the issue of immigration. These are the most difficult conversations because there are strong arguments that people are making against immigration and there are always students that are minority students or immigrant or children of immigrants that find it extremely offensive. And it's, it's very hard to have this conversation in a safe way. Uh, mm-hmm. I feel unsafe a little bit on this, on this issue because in, you, in the European context, but it's true in the American context as well, there are people who strongly oppose immigration and... Yeah, they might be racist, but they also have other concerns aside from being racist. And it's very hard to have this conversation without it becoming racist. And I, I, I'm not sure that it's, it's hardly possible. And I think that difficulty that, we ex- that I experience in the classroom is a difficulty that left-wing parties experience in Europe. And I think that, I mean, there, there is research that shows that they haven't been talking about immigration because they don't know how... And I haven't solved it. I don't know how to do it either. But there has to be a better way to do it because it's the, the difficulty that I'm facing is a, is a representative of a much bigger difficulty in the world. And did you think there had been a bit of a reluctance to deal with such things? Because, there's, as you said, they're so complicated. And you're so quickly either in a contradictory position or you're saying things you really would rather not say. Yeah, exactly. So has there been a, and a kind of has there been some sense that the elite stepped out of this a little bit? I think so, yeah, I think so. And it's, I mean, I'm sure it's true. I've seen research that shows that political parties, mm-hmm. left-wing political parties in Europe, didn't talk about it before the far right came and talked about it because they were probably uncomfortable with it and probably didn't have much to say. That again relates to at least in the United States, there's a narrative and a prominent one that views immigrants as a good thing and immigration as a good thing. So at least there is basis for that. I'm not sure that this even exists in Europe. Uh, and that makes it very, very hard. Right. So that's saying that populist or what you could sort of uh, far-right parties have brought something into the conversation discussion. This goes back to our idea of sort of freedom of speech and sort of in America and American political culture. People want every option to be debated. Yeah. A lot of people say anything is on the table. Yeah. I'm not going to go back to your example of some rights are non-negotiable. And yeah. there are some Americans who say, no, certain things are actually non-negotiable. For yeah. example, equality in education, Brown versus Board, cannot be reversed. It may be at some point. We don't know. I mean, it's unlikely. But as you said, the court the court interprets. It doesn't It's just enforce a self-legislating law. Yeah, that's where social media becomes problematic. You asked me before about social media, right? The... Freedom of speech, this idea of very, very free freedom of speech also was formed and understood in a period where you could be exposed to what people are saying around you and you could ex- be exposed to media and media was ruled by ga- by gatekeepers. And it's not now. It's led by, you know, whoever is savvy at this. And the, the far right has been savvy at it. And, and that's where the idea of, of rethinking freedom of speech comes from. I'm not 
I'm not clairvoyant. I don't know what's going to happen. But um, but some kind of a regulation of social media seems to be in the cards. But I think it's going to take a long time. I think we're in a period where definitely a period of transition about who controls the narrative or the narratives in society. And, and who m- controls the means of spreading the narrative, exactly. right? Exactly. That's also one part, yeah. right? Because you're saying a narrative now is shared in a different way. Exactly. It's a, it's a, it's a very... That part is very new. But we see, I actually kind of in some strange way enjoy this. We see great contradictions. So, for example, the very conservative parties asking for social media platforms to be regulated by the state. Yeah. At the same time, they're saying the state should never interfere in speech. Yeah. But they should interfere when Twitter doesn't host the Nazis. And you're thinking, wait, didn't you just say you don't want to interfere in speech ever? So I like when the contradictions become exposed because I think it's a, it's important to live with them and say, okay, there are tensions in the system and they can be exploited. And on that, the left has very similar contradiction. They're for freedom of speech, but they really don't want certain things to be said. So uh, it's a, right. I think, but I think it's a very, um, to, it's a very natural instinct. You know, I, I feel the same way. Like, yeah, let's all be tolerant. Hey, don't say that though. I get really upset when you say that. So I don't know. We'll all, we'll all have to start thinking about how we have conversations about some difficult issues. Right. Can you give our listeners a, a tip sort of what should they be reading or listening to or paying attention to to understand what's going on because what you're studying is a comparative context Mm -hmm. many countries that people pick up a little story or a big story here and there they see maybe the election results but it's hard to make sense of it yeah so where do you get your information when you're not working as an academic when you wear your different hat (laughs) (laughs) it's a good question where do i get i mean i read i read the newspapers Mm -hmm. um so i read a few of them Mm -hmm. and i try to read you know, the Wall Street Journal on top of like the New York Times or the mm-hmm. Guardian. Mm-hmm. I listen to tons of podcasts, actually. Okay. <laughs> and actually, that's an amazing source to mm-hmm. just just try to hear people and listen to conversation. I cook and listen to podcasts all the time and I get would, great ideas. Would you think it's useful to also um, have on your social media channels some very right wing sources? So to tap into sort of some <laughs> of those to hear what they're saying or I mean, so Some people do that, sort of as yeah, a, their no, daily diet to know what's going on. I know. I don't, but <laughs> I understand why to do it. Uh, I think it's important to get out of your bubble, but there are different ways to do it. Like, you don't have to go all extreme to do that. I think there are sources that try to, that try to bring in these voices. That's why I said podcasts. A lot of time you can just hear a conversation with a person, a different person, a person that is not in your mm-hmm. kind of a cross-cutting person, someone with mm-hmm. a different from a different tribe than yours. Mm-hmm. And that is nice. Yeah, some people add to their diet. Okay. Uh, but I, my diet is very actually, l- embarrassingly, low on social media. So <laughs> I don't have to mix and match there because I, I try to avoid I don't think you're going to be able to live much longer like this. I'm sorry. I think you're <laughs> going to have to get up your elitist or something and actually join I, the fray. No, I no, it's just causing me stress. So I prefer, <laughs> I prefer to... Uh, I think it's important to sort of um, curate or whatever people call it, your own channels. Yeah. To not just be subjected to random stuff that you may not find useful. Yeah. And the other thing is if you're interested in a certain place, try to read something from that place. So people from the place write completely different things than people from this place. You've studied these different countries, and I asked this question before. What should universities in this country, we have organizations such as Scholars at Risk that really help and publicize actually the value and importance of academic freedom around the country, Mm -hmm. around the world. 
what do you think academics here who are not in political science um, or those fields can do? Say, I'm doing something very removed from this, and it doesn't really touch me. I study or teach in American University. I don't know what's going on in Turkey. I don't know enough about it. Yeah. So one thing is maybe to reach out. There are conferences, uh, the big conferences, when they organize, try to have panels with scholars from that place. They can, even if they don't share their stories, even if it's not that kind of an exchange, it can still be a human exchange between scholars where you invite people from different places. Just be more aware of the places that have these problems and try to understand how you can invite or reach out or be in contact with these different places. I really want to thank you for being on the podcast today. So uh, it's been a pleasure, Adas. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. And I wish you the best of luck with finishing, I guess, your manuscript, which is probably hopefully getting close to being done. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm working on several papers and a manuscript. And in, in the end, whenever it is, it will be ready. Great. Okay. Thanks again for being on the podcast today. Thank you very much.